Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening, <laughs> back again. Thank you for being with us. Look, in many ways, if you listen to the dinner table conversation, these are undeniably difficult times. We must remain optimistic, but we equally must understand the nature of the gathering storm. I'll be talking to Peter Dutton tonight. Much of the discussion is about cost of living. I'll be asking him to think about the meaning of those words, especially in relation to young people. You think about it slowly, the cost of living. Young people are living through a time when via the almost one-sided argument, for example, about the voice, their heads are filled with the notion of racism, that we're a racist country, which of course we are not. You will recall when I spoke to Donald Trump Jr. I raised that issue where his father said that we view these days everything through the prism of race. And he called it a Marxist doctrine, holding that America and Australia is a wicked and racist nation. And that even President Trump's words Young children are complicit in oppression and that our entire society must be radically reformed. And he rightly warned, this was in 2020, that, quote, critical race theory is being forced into our children's schools. It's being imposed into workplace training. It's being deployed to rip apart friends, neighbours and families, unquote. That's true. President Trump said, quote, teaching this horrible doctrine to our children is a form of child abuse in the truest sense of the words, unquote. See, this is the real cost or the price that children are paying for living today. That's one price. This stuff penetrates their thinking. We're racists. It is disgraceful and it's dishonest. Then I spoke to two young footballers at the weekend who raised another cost of living for young people in these times. What they said are we to make of this gender dysphoria? I couldn't believe it. I mean, they were asking me about the football. They didn't ask me whether my horse won at the races or where we were going for our holidays. No, they were worried, can a boy be a girl or a girl be a boy? And can all this happen without parents knowing? I mean, we only heard yesterday that parents are really concerned that some high schools are, their words, quote, crossing the line in not only supporting students to socially transition as the opposite sex without parents' knowledge, but they're actively encouraging children to question gender identities. Concerned teachers were quoted as saying that so-called well-being coordinators in schools, quote, are pushing transgender ideology on students and confusing young teenagers by urging them to consider concepts of sexuality and identity that they're not yet mature enough to understand, unquote. And the report said, well-being coordinators frequently arrange for trans activist organisations to give talks within schools discussing gender fluidity, aimed at affirming and celebrating gender diverse children, unquote. See, this is another cost of being a young person today. I think this is far worse than the price of sugar or electricity. One school teacher was quoted as saying, these people who spend half their life going to courses with external agencies, trans activist groups. They flood the school with posters and tell the librarian what books to buy and all the teachers defer to them. What cost is this imposing on the life of young school children? You see, every effort is being made to destroy Donald Trump's candidature for the President of the United States. His political opponents are throwing everything at him, not only to silence him, but to destroy him such that the Democrat-oriented left-wing New York judge has arranged that Trump's next court appearance 
will be in the middle of the Republican primaries. In other words, thwart Trump's attempt even to speak to his own Republican base in order to win the nomination. You see, didn't these same lefties argue that the real Trump risk was he'd smash our institutional structures? He's done no such thing. But the left have, and they are in what is a concerted political, philosophical and ideological attempt to overthrow institutions and values that have long served our society. And that includes the family. And here we are in Australia and in America. We're racist, when in fact we're not. Destroy the family and alarm our children about their gender. Prefer people on the basis of gender and identity, not ability. Those who saw the musical Evita, where the Perrin administration presided over the collapse of the once rich Argentina, Ava Perron sings, get them while they're young. This is happening here. The cost of living a young life. We're racist. A boy can be a girl and don't tell the parents. And then you and I, because of our age, are destroying the planet. Carbon dioxide, another untruth. The economy will be devastated by the left. Our wealth challenged, if not destroyed. But the cost to the young is not the debt, but the fear and alarmism and anxiety that we've done nothing about this so-called climate change and we're leaving them to, in to inherit a destroyed planet. We saw this in coronavirus. Those who argued against shutting schools, closing business, massive lockdowns, wearing masks, were demonised and cancelled, vilified. I know all about that. Yet now, all those coronavirus responses are being demonstrated for what they were, a hoax. Caving into big pharma. See, I think this is the real cost of living. I worry about the young. Our children are being manipulated and indoctrinated, and one day they'll vote. Is it alarmist to argue that the overthrow of our institutions and values is not far away if this continues? This is the real cost for young people living today, make no mistake. The media are complicit in this. I spoke to Donald Trump Jr. last week. The interview went viral. The Durham reports come out confirming that the alleged collusion between Donald Trump, President Donald Trump and Russia was a fabrication. The FBI virtually doing the bidding of the Democrats. But the ABC's Four Corners program at the time ran a three part series. And the journalist in charge described it as the story of the century collusion between Russia and Trump. It was an ABC lie, but the series remains online. There'll be no apology from the ABC. The media are part of this indoctrination and manipulation of our young. We learnt yesterday that Brittany Higgins was actually texting the senior ABC journalist, Laura Tingle, about the federal police months before the trial was to begin. And she got a very sympathetic response from Laura Tingle. And I quote, just sing out, of course, if you want to provide the full lot that's the brief of evidence. Lots of hugs and boxing gloves in the meantime, unquote. The ABC. Well, there's some good news. On the rugby league front, I was there when the young Canberra forward, Corey Harawira Naira, a very decent and courteous young man, collapsed with a seizure in Saturday night's game against South. It was a terrible moment. The young man's made a video and thanked his supporters. He's been released from hospital, but all care will be taken. Congratulations to the media, by the way, who didn't show the whole episode during the broadcast. It was a very distressing time, but everyone is hopeful that Corey will get the all clear. Now, I'm sure like many of you, you most probably wonder about the light show in Sydney named Vivid. Now, I'm a technical dunce, but I haven't watched it on Sunday night. It was beyond belief. Thousands of drones, now all of which, as you may or may not know, they've got little motors in them, and they were released by some brilliantly creative person, presumably sitting on a computer, and they did everything in the sky. They printed out Welcome to Viva, uh, Vivid, Welcome to Sydney, sharks were coming out of the water, the map of the world, thousands of drones of all colours, and then a map of Australia sitting at the bottom of the world as the world rotated. There were thousands and thousands of people lining a harbour foreshore, and for the first time I understood why. It's really worth a visit. I think the drone display was on about 9.30 p.m. And look, while talking about brilliance, if you are into women's football, soccer, Sam Kerr must rank as one of the most outstanding sportsmen or women ever to wear an Australian jersey. Will Swanton is right when he described her as a rock star of Australian sport. And as he said, she sneezes and the ball finds the back of the net. Two goals at the weekend and Chelsea win the women's Super League title in Britain. She's on her way home to lead Australia, the Matildas, 
hopefully to its first football World Cup triumph. Their first match is against Ireland in Sydney on July 20. This is a remarkable athlete, Sam Kerr, belonging amongst the very best Australia has ever produced. And I should make mention that rather amazingly on Saturday, Henry Kissinger, one of the most influential figures of our time, who was alongside President Nixon when China opened its arms to the West, Henry Kissinger was 100 on Saturday. With the library of history in his head, Dr. Kissinger can't be ignored. He said the world was in a classic pre-World War I situation on the path to great power confrontation, quote, because both sides have convinced themselves that the other represents a strategic danger. Rightly, Dr. Kissinger said only last week at 100 years of age that US leadership and confidence were fading, that restoring that confidence and finding statesmen who could lead it was an urgent necessity, and that a Ukrainian-style war in Taiwan would destroy the island and devastate the world economy. And interestingly, he said such a war in Taiwan could also set back China domestically when its leader's greatest fear was upheaval at home. Now, echoing what we've been saying on this program, Dr. Kissinger then said ominously, quote, I don't think Biden can supply the inspiration and I'm hoping the Republicans can come up with someone better. It is not a great moment in history, unquote. Dr. Henry Kissinger, born five years after the end of the Great War and still going, I don't think we can afford to ignore his warning. And finally, a fitting tribute yesterday to the remarkable Australian and personal friend, 95-year-old artist John Olson, who died last month at his home in the Southern Highlands. It was appropriate that the farewell to John took place inside the modern extension of the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It was the first public institution to buy John Olson's work when John was only 30. The gallery now holds 133 of his works as part of the tribute to this remarkable artist, wonderful human being and very great Australian. It is appropriate that John Olson's works are projected nightly on the Opera House sales for the vivid winter festival of lights to which I've just referred. Put simply, John Olson made the world a better place. It's a truism to say we can ill afford the loss of such decent, gifted, poetic and creative people. The response to the Donald Trump Jr. interview last Thursday evening has been astonishing. You can still catch it on the ADH library. Just go to Alan Jones on the app, ADH TV, or the website, which is ADH.TV, and the interview is there. I raised with him in that interview, and I'll be raising this with Peter Dutton when I speak to him later tonight, what Donald Trump as president said in 2020, which is very critical to us here today, where you're entitled to feel that everything you say may be interpreted as your critics see fit as a statement of race. Donald Trump said in 2020, and I quote, the left is attempting to divide Americans by race in the service of political power. Unquote. He further said, by viewing every issue through the lens of race, they want to impose a new segregation and we must not allow this to happen. He further said, President Trump, critical race theory, this is President Trump, critical race theory is being forced into our children's schools it's being imposed into workplace training. It's being deployed to rip apart friends, neighbours and families. Teaching this horrible doctrine to our children is a form of child abuse in the truest sense of those words, unquote. Now, I raised the further issue on this subject with Donald Trump Jr. Here is the exchange, the question and his answer. Have we, have we made any progress from 2020 when your dad said he didn't beg any pardons, and I quote him again, students in our universities are inundated with critical race theory. He said this is a Marxist doctrine holding that America, okay, called Australia, is a wicked and racist nation. We're getting all this now. A wicked and racist nation. That even young children are complicit, he said, in oppression and that our entire society must be radically reformed. Uh, how do we avoid this indoctrination and where do we get politicians with the guts to oppose all this? Well, we, we, we got to look long and hard. I mean, you know, the, the answer of the left is everything. It's either, you know, climate change or white supremacy. That's somehow the cause of, again, and solution for all of life's problems. Well, further on, Donald Trump Jr. simply said, so few have the guts to call this out. Well, as you know, you couldn't move last week in this state in Australia or in the media, 
without having race thrown at you from every direction, in Canberra, The Voice, in broadcasting, the ABC, and in the New South Wales Parliament, with a recently elected Vietnamese Australian MP by the name of Tree Vo. Now I'm told he's a good man, and why wouldn't he be? He won the seat of Cabramatta comfortably. But after Mr Vo asked his question in the Parliament last week, New South Wales Parliament, the Liberal MP Mark Coury called across the chamber, and I quote, I thought that bloke worked in catering. Now, that's one of the many puny attempts at humour volunteered by MPs in Australia's parliaments every other day. I thought that bloke worked in catering. Well, all hell broke loose. And as Donald Trump made the point in 2020, every issue is viewed through the lens of race. So the Liberal MP Coure was asked to apologise because the comment was offensive and racist. Well, Coure did withdraw. It would have been better if he had asked for an explanation as to how the hell such a simple statement could be viewed through the prism of race. But a Greens MP argued that Coure should apologise to every MP in the chamber because, quote, when racist comments are made of such disgraceful proportions, and away she went. And the Strathfield MP, Jason Yatsen Lee, who has a Chinese background, called the comments deeply offensive because, quote, when my family came to Australia, we were in catering, unquote. Well, we're proud of everyone who comes to Australia who rolls their sleeves up, makes a quid, pays taxes and contributes to the community. And a rewarding and productive vocation is catering. But how on earth can some interjection, I thought that bloke worked in catering, be racist and offensive? Now, the sensible Australian response would be to the member, uh, who though he'd come into Australia as a migrant and done very well, he's now a member of parliament, he should have stood up to the interjection and said, yes, I did. Yes, I did, and I'm proud of it. And I'm sure I made a greater contribution before I entered this chamber than you did. I didn't draw a salary from the ratepayers working unproductively on some local council. See, Coure, the bloke who interjected, had been a councillor. A far easier earn, isn't it, than being a caterer? So Labor's Mr Vaux could have then said, listen, when you can prove that you've made your own way by rolling up your sleeves and taking risks and employing people, as happens in the catering industry, instead of living off the teat of some local council, when you've done that, I'm happy to hear from you, but until you have, sit down and keep quiet. But huh, Donald Trump hit the nail on the head. The left is attempting to divide Americans, he said, by race, and so they are here. And that is why we must vote no to the voice. President Trump said in 2020, by viewing every issue through the lens of race, they want to impose a new segregation and we can't allow that to happen, unquote. Well, this racist rot has set in everywhere. Lest I be misunderstood, which always suits my critics, racism is ugly and unacceptable. That doesn't mean to say that every comment must be viewed as having a racist overtone. And we are not a racist country. The majority of Australians are colour blind. We run the risk of reaching the point where even saying hello will be racist because of the tone of the delivery. So to a white man, I say hello. To the black over there, I said hello. Oh, 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 you address us differently. We are supposed to have leaders that are worth two bob if they can't stand in a public place and set their minds and their language against this corrosive behaviour of allowing every comment to be viewed and interpreted on the basis of race. The world will start to see Australia as a nation of whinges and belly aches if we aren't already regarded that anyway. At the moment, this nation does have a minority of whinges and belly aches, and they should be told clearly they are a minority and let the rest of us get on with our lives. Look, it is a truism that success in politics involves the art of repetition. I've said many times, when you're sick of saying it, that's when the politician's sick of saying it, the voter is only starting to hear it. So the first thing I, as a broadcaster, am prepared to repeat will deliver a jarring thought to the critics of Peter Dutton. I think if the Liberals had reversed their political slide, Dutton is the man to do it. I've said this from day one. His backstory is outstanding. He's been in Parliament for 21 years. He won the seat of Dixon in Brisbane, a notionally Labor seat, eight elections in a row. All these people out there say, oh, I can't win votes. He knows a bit about winning votes. He's held ministries in the Howard, Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison cabinets. He served on the National Security Committee. Put simply, on political and policy issues, this bloke runs rings around the Labor government, most of whom have never held a ministry. Peter Dutton was a health minister, a sports minister, a defence minister, the Home Affairs Minister. He's been on the Expenditure Review Committee and the National Security Committee. This bloke's forgotten more than his political critics know. 
And the bit I like is, as a young bloke, he was a cop in Queensland. I just hope Peter Dutton returns to being a cop because my God, a tough voice on the beat is what is needed today everywhere where we're caving into minorities. This is the bloke who canceled the visas as Home Affairs Minister of about 6,000 criminals who'd committed sexual offences against women and children, who'd committed murder and serious criminal acts. He deported them. So, oh, oh, but Dutton doesn't smile and he looks tough. I don't think he can smile over all that stuff. Then we come to the voice. As a policeman, Peter Dutton worked in Townsville. He saw many domestic violence incidents involving Indigenous communities. In relation to the plight of Indigenous Australians, about which no mention is made in the so-called voice, Peter Dutton said when I spoke to him last year, the little boys and girls in parts of our country in 2022 who slept in a shipping container last night to get through the hours of darkness in Indigenous communities. Peter Dutton's weakness will be revealed if he backs off from these truths with the bedwetters in his party. And I include Julian Lisa, who was amazingly told the weekend, I just laughed out loud, he's got his eyes on the leadership. Bedwetters to support Lisa, to knock off Dutton, good luck. Peter Dutton spoke for millions of Australians and Liberal Party members who are looking to come back into their political home. And he said, going to a meeting here in Canberra and giving 10 acknowledgements to country, that's fine. He said, but I wanna know how is it we're going to support those kids? I wanna know how is it we're going to get better health outcomes and lower mortality rates, more kids through university. Just finishing primary school, he said in secondary school, would be a start. Peter Dutton's got one task. He's just got to get Liberals, genuine Liberals, to vote Liberal. It is a tough road. It's full of bumps and full of detours. But I believe the Liberals have the tough leader this country needs. Dutton is no cave-in man. He joins me. Peter Dutton, thank you for your time. Um, My pleasure. More than ever, this nation needs a tough cop. Are you the man for the job? <laughs> well, I believe that I am, and I believe that the uh, public wants leadership, but... Uh, and they want a leader who can make the tough decisions in our country's best interest to support families, to support small businesses, to those elements that uh, would speak against our values, our way of life. Uh, I believe very strongly uh, we're the best country in the world and we should be prepared to stand up and to defend it. And that's how I've conducted myself during my time in public life. Well, I, I just want to take you in a different direction, if I might, because everywhere we go, there is a legitimate talk about the cost of living. And people think of that in terms of the supermarket and the Bowser and the electricity bills. And we all know that has gone woefully in the wrong direction under Labor and the figures are there. Can I just ask you, though, about the real meaning of those words, cost of living? You see, you've got children. Um, I don't know whether they're talking about the beach or the football or the next party, because the kids I talk to, their heads are filled with the notion of racism, that we're a racist country. And all that will end if we vote yes to the voice. I mean, is this a cost our children should pay to be made to feel we live in a racist country? How do you, as Peter Dutton, turn that around? Well, I, I think it's outrageous and I think it's something that we need to call out. Sarah Henderson, our Shadow Education Minister, I think gave a great uh, speech last week in relation to this. Our kids shouldn't be going to schools to be turned out as disciples of a woke ideology and agenda. They're there to learn and they're there to understand our history so that they can not make the mistakes of history, that they can celebrate the good things that have taken place in our country's history and world history so that they can contribute to our country in a way that we'll continue to see stand proud in the world. But I, you're right, Alan. I mean, my, my kids are now, Becca's 21, Harry's just finished year 12, first year at uni and, and Tom's in year the reality is that the kids are being indoctrinated with the national curriculum, or at least that it's interpreted. And a lot of teachers who in private and have the same conversation you and I are having now. And when you speak, to them, they're confused because they're, they're being pumped with information and they're being told to ignore the good. We're confusing children, we're complicating their world. When you see a spike in presentations in adolescents across the country at the moment it's just as a result of yeah. COVID and being locked down. Yeah. I think it's also because they're getting a bomb 
an agenda that is not in their there's best no interest. Doubt, no doubt about it. My apologies to the our viewers who there's a bit of a difficulty with the pictures here, but at the same time, we can hear his voice and his message, and that's the main thing. Uh, Peter, Dutton, I interviewed Donald Trump Jr. last week and repeated to him his father's words about America, and it applies to us, that seeing everything through the lens of race, he said, is a Marxist doctrine, that we're a wicked and a racist nation, and that young children are complicit in oppression. Our entire society must be radically reformed. Now, can I put to you that this is the real cost that young people living today are facing? They're brainwashed that this nation is racist. I mean, President Trump said that this stuff, quote, critical race theory is being forced into our children's schools, is being imposed into workplace training, it's being deployed to rip apart friends, neighbours and families. Peter Dutton, this is going on now in this debate about the voice. You say no and you're a racist, but the people who want to put race into the Constitution are the heroes of the hour. How do I work that out? How do young people make sense of that? Well, Alan, I think this is why you're seeing the polling trend the way it is at the moment, because a silent majority, people who have just a greater deal of common sense than, frankly, the Prime Minister does, they're working it out. They know that they're being starved of the detail. They know that when they see the ads for The Voice on television, it, when it doesn't actually mention The Voice, that, hang on, there's something to, to see here. And I'm not going to be told that because I'm asking for the details so that I can make an informed judgment about whether I support The Voice or not, that somehow I'm a racist or that my world view is completely unacceptable to, to you or being shouted down by Noel Pearson or Anthony Albanese or Linda Burney or somebody else. I just don't think that it's productive. And I think the complete uh, ignoring of uh, our, our British history settlement, uh, the civilization that we have developed, uh, our democracy, our freedom of voice, of, of choice, uh, the value of the individual, that, that can't be stifled or denied. It's a huge part of why we've turned out to be the wonderful country that I we agree. are today. We're God's institution. Agree. Uh, opportunities everywhere. And exactly, exactly. See, I, I spoke to two young footballers at the weekend and I was absolutely astonished, Peter. I thought they were going to ask me about the football or did your horse win because they knew I had a horse racing on Saturday. Did your horse win at the races or <laughs> where they might be going for holiday? Straight away, they came up to me as if I was the fountain of knowledge and they said, what, what do we make about this gender dysphoria? Can a boy be a girl and a girl be a boy and can this happen without parents' knowledge? Now... Parents are now saying that some high schools are, quote, crossing the line in supporting students to socially transition as the opposite sex without parents' knowledge. Doesn't the nation need leadership to stand up against this? Well, well of course it does. And let me come to that important second issue in a second. But, I mean, did, did your horse win on the weekend or not? <laughs> It'll win tomorrow at Durban. It'll win All right, well, Ra I'll race <laughs> Race two at Durban hey, tomorrow. Tell me off air. Tell me off air. I get the good odds before you give it away. <laughs> no. Uh, look, Alan, I, I just don't accept discrimination in any form. And I believe that's the starting point for the vast majority of Australians. Uh, discriminate against people on their religion, uh, on the basis of their skin colour or else, uh, their sexuality, etc. And that's as it should be. And I believe very strongly that children deserve the innocence of their childhood. Uh, they are born into a wonderful family in most circumstances, and that should be the predominant influence on them, particularly in the formative years. Not in a school environment, uh, even a preschool environment now, where you have some teacher uh, or a person at least is masquerading as a teacher, but is really an activist for a particular cause. And they're imparting that uh, onto young children who I think are becoming confused uh, in larger numbers with the conversation. So yeah. no discrimination on basis. Oh. And if children have a decision to make, they should make it uh, ideally with their parents. Definitely. Uh, not be ostracised uh, as, as a result uh, of a decision. No, no, we're, all, make, but also we're all supportive not be of that. isolated from their parents. Yeah, I mean, this is just breaking yeah. down the family. The, this is a parental matter. And we should be encouraging if there's a problem, a dysphoria problem, parents have to be talked about. See... Then we go to the anxiety with youth suicide rates going up. The same young people are telling us that rotten people like you, Peter Dutton, and me are leaving them in a world in which they won't survive because of climate change. And Bowen and Albanese are talking about this existential threat of carbon dioxide. 
Peter, why are the Liberals supporting this nonsense, this zero, net zero by 2030 and shut down the coal mines and put us into the darkness and because we've got to do this, because the world is under threat. I mean, and this is frightening kids. What do you say? Well, Alan, again, I mean, people look at uh, what's happening in other countries uh, around the world, particularly in China at the moment, uh, in terms of their own emissions, the, the rate at which... Uh, coal-fired power stations are being built and what Australia can do as a population of 26.1 million people. We've been very clear about the fact that you shouldn't be turning off the old system until a new system is built. And if you continue down the path that the government's on at the moment, the lights are going out and certainly prices are going up. We know that for, I mean, from the 21st, from the 1st of July, another 25% increase uh, for many households, this is facing huge increases. We were in the Yarra Valley yesterday where their power has gone up by $200,000 since Labor was elected. Uh, they're a food manufacturer there. Th that, that price, it, it has to be passed on to consumers yeah. and it's inflationary. And when you go to the supermarket checkout, you know that you're getting less in your trolley today for the same amount of money that you did 12 or 18 months ago. Well, and it's because I, I, of the I, energy I, policy, because of the inflationary policies otherwise. I'm, I suppose I'm tougher than you. I think Chris Bowen is the most dangerous politician this country's seen since World War II. And they've had their way. They've had their way. And now this net zero nonsense, as you said, electricity bills on the eastern seaboard from July 1, that's around the corner, 29% minimum for small business, 25% for households, on top of all the other costs of living imports. What do you say? Peter Dutton, to the Bloomberg research of last week, that to get to net zero by 2050, we'd need up to 1.9 trillion invested into the national energy system. That's 68 billion a year. Uh, I'm begging you on behalf of bloody millions of people out there to forget the polls, the bedwetters and the left-wing minorities and simply say the coalition won't be endorsing this stuff. Well, Alan, we're the ones who have started a conversation about uh, nuclear nuclear power. That it's an absurdity that we can get nuclear stuff around, but that we can't have a discussion about nuclear power, which is zero emissions, and that's why many countries in Europe are adopting it. There are 32 countries who have nuclear power, 50 who are looking at adopting the small modular reactors, and uh, frankly, that gives you a stability of supply to allow to. Uh, firm know, but, up, uh, renewable but that's down the system. track, Peter. That's and, down the and, track. And you could, what about clean well, coal? We've well, got it's, clean it's, coal. It's, it's in the near the term. world wants our coal. Why can't we use it? Well, we, we, we should continue to use it until Definitely. the new system is. And the system, the new system is not ready. Look, Ellen, if a battery came along tomorrow that stored power to keep the lights running for a fortnight when there was a, a rain period. Uh, I mean, I don't have any problem with that. If that's the, the cheapest way of delivering energy, here's the point, the most important point I think I can make. I want for Australian sports, like the one that we saw yesterday in Yarra Valley, I want the farmers, I want families in a country like ours where we have an abundance of natural resource not to be paying the highest energy prices in the world because all that happens is that the manufacturing companies close here, they go offshore, they emit more into the atmosphere, they import their product back into Australia at a higher price and Australians miss out again. We miss out on the jobs, we miss out on the economic productivity. So that's why getting the energy policy right is important for Well, it's, for not, today, it's, it's for not right now, mate. Uh, it's not uh, right now, Peter. I mean, since Liddell closed, since Liddell closed, closed, electricity prices in New South Wales have increased by 80% and now they're talking about energy shortages. I mean, we used to have wholesale power prices, coal-fired power, because I'm not one who believes that carbon dioxide is causing any problem at all, but we used to have wholesale power prices at $50 a megawatt hour, thanks to a stack of coal and gas. Albanese and Bowen come along, and plenty on your side, who don't want to use these resources, solar and wind, but not coal. So wholesale power prices now, today, as I speak to you, not $50 a megawatt hour in New South Wales, $168. Now, the people watching you have heard my introduction to you, the tough cop on the beat. Why wouldn't this tough cop on the beat say we will not demonise coal and gas and we won't shut our eyes to nuclear? It's a three-pronged attack. Well, Alan, we're not demonising coal and gas. As I've said, it's, uh, I mean, I've made an announcement last week that we believe there should be a streamlining of 
the approval process so that we can bring more gas in because that res results in more supply and a downward pressure on prices. It, it allows, uh, I mean, gas is more and more important. This has been recognised by even the Democrats in the United States. It's absolutely essential. We get more gas into the system because hydrogen or green hydrogen, the Prime Minister sort of fantasises about at the moment, is, is, is not a reality. And you can't pretend that it is. You can't pretend that we can keep the lights on when the solar panels don't work at night time. And we, we have, for the first time uh, in, you know, frankly, many years uh, of national debate, been prepared to start the conversation about nuclear power. We're working on costings and all of the assumptions behind that at the moment. And We'll make an announcement in due course, mm. but the interest that I have but don't turn is frankly back not on where coal. the power comes from. Well, we're not we're not we're not uh, suggesting that that you should that the coal and gas in the system at the moment is what's keeping the lights on, and without it is. Uh, and I'm sorry. Without and I'm sorry. Enabled, and Chris Barnes could pretend otherwise, but that's not the reality. Peter, Peter enabled Chalmers to talk about about a budget surplus. That's all come from our resource exports. I mean, the hypocrisy is unbelievable. What? And, and he never mentioned the words. No, he talked about things. Things, things, things that we, things yeah. that we export. Well, things. he was talking about coal and gas. Yeah. And you don't get back to a surplus without it. Oh, you don't pay mate. for the schools and the roads and oh. infrastructure you need. That's the reality. Okay. Now, listen, just a quick one before you go on the voice. What are you saying to the nation's elites? Oh, God, don't we love them? Corporate Australia, in sport, in academia, <laughs> in the media, in the judiciary, the elites. They want to discredit you and intimidate anyone who dares to say, no, these people are all rent seekers, mind you. They're all getting money from the government, so they'll do the government's bidding. Why should any of these people be entitled to speak on behalf of their membership? Just take Rugby League, for example. How can they speak on behalf of all the followers, all the parents, all the players in Rugby League? What are you saying to these elites? Well, well, well they, they can't. And... What about the next moral issue? What about gambling and sport? Uh, where are they in relation to, to that issue? I presume they're going to advise uh, their their sport and their followers that uh, uh, that's not something that uh, is in the best interest of young people to be introduced to a betting culture at a young age. Uh, I bet they're nowhere to be found on that issue. And I, to be honest, uh, I, I, I welcome it because I think there's a counterproductive nature to it. I think there are a lot of people who aren't Second. going to be told by, by people living in ivory towers that this is what they should think and this is how they should vote. I think uh, rugby, league voted, uh, rugby league followers and followers of sport more generally are much smarter than what the Prime Minister gives them credit. And I think they're getting a better understanding now that the voice will change the whole system of government. The voice by design, as the Prime Minister now admits, is going to in interfere with and have a say in every element of government making decision making. And if the Prime Minister wants argue that and the elites want to argue that then go out and argue it we all want to see a better outcome for indigenous australians but we're not going to see it through a canberra voice which is going to be a great bureaucracy employing thousands of extra public servants at a cost of many billions of dollars a year and it's not the no case that's sponsoring hate and intimidation and these nasty comments that have been made about you and everybody else just before you go uh, julian assange is an australian locked up in a dreadful prison no charges against him He's not responsible for leaking anything. Chelsea Manning did all of that. And she admitted that she did it in America. He merely published it, so did The Guardian, so did The New York Times. Um, Chelsea Manning was pardoned by Barack Obama. This man, Julian Assange in Australia, is locked up in this dreadful, dreadful prison, Bill Marsh Prison. I venture to say that his life and health are at risk. He's not well. Um, have you approached Anthony Albanese? What's your position on this to make representations to the United States government to give to, to give to Julian Assange the same treatment as Barack Obama gave to Chelsea Manning? Pardoned her. Well, Alan, I, I made some comments uh, a couple of weeks ago and he's an Australian citizen. There are serious allegations against him and being locked in a prison forever without... Uh, having to answer those allegations, uh, that the denial of uh, that natural justice or the ability for him to answer those charges uh, in a court process. I mean, th there are many people to blame for circumstance uh, that he's in, including himself, but the Prime Minister has made representations to President Biden. I've spoken to the Prime Minister about the issue. Uh, the guy is 
that the negotiations are best done between our government and the Biden administration and the public commentary uh, and sort of wide ranging public commentary uh, from leaders uh, is probably all in that process. So, um, so I'll probably leave what I've Said there right. But could I just correct you? Could I just correct you on one thing? Correct you on one thing. This of man course. received international awards for his journalism in relation to WikiLeaks. All he did was publish, the same as the New York Times did, and the same as the Guardian did. He's the only publisher in the history of the free world ever to be prosecuted in this way, while others have been allowed to pass. So it does seem as though. A lot of false arguments are being mounted here. Surely enough is enough, as Albo said when he was in opposition. He said enough is enough. Well, what does that mean when you're in government? Well, it, it means you need to follow through on your word. And he's speaking with uh, President Biden, uh, as, as I understand it. So uh, obviously um, there are uh, you know, different narratives here in, in this debate. And the Americans have a particular view about his his actions, and I, you know, I respect what, you, what you've just said. Uh, but th th these matters need to be uh, dealt with and it, it can't go on indefinitely. The matters need to be brought to a head and, uh, and that that's, I think is important. So I, I think it's best for the government to continue uh, its policy with the Biden administration. And uh, as I say, he's an Australian citizen, I agree or disagree with what he's done, uh, but for any Australian citizen to uh, be denied that process or to be uh, in the situation that uh, the Sarge is in at the moment. Uh, it's not tenable and it needs to be uh, resolved uh, one way or another. Okay. I hope that uh, that can come to a head right. as quickly as possible. Good on you. The board of the Walkley Awards, I should say, gave WikiLeaks the prize for the most outstanding contribution to journalism in 2011, praised WikiLeaks for delivering an avalanche of inconvenient truths during what they said was a courageous commitment to journalism. Terrible set of circumstances. Peter Dutton, it's good to talk to you. Stay strong. Don't be intimidated by the bedwetters. And we will, we will, talk, <laughs> again. We, we will talk again. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Alan. There he is, Peter Dutton. Yeah, mate, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Peter Dutton, not at all. Look, I think, as you know, the Liberal seat, or former Liberal seat of Wentworth, was once regarded as a blue ribbon Liberal seat that produced prime ministers. It's now in the hands of the Teals, I'm not sure how long that'll last, notwithstanding Allegra Spender, who is a very well-credentialed lady and she's very smart, but she's a Liberal at heart, not a Teal. Dave Sharma is the beaten candidate, possessed of very, very distinguished credentials. I want to talk to him tonight about this issue in America of raising the debt ceiling, which will be front and centre tomorrow. It's easy to imagine that this has got nothing to do with us, but in many ways it's got everything to do with Australia. America won't default, that's clear. The Speaker, the Republican Kevin McCarthy, has been in discussions with someone representing President Biden because in Biden's state, he would be thinking the ceiling had something to do with the roof of the Oval Office. However, the Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, heading a majority Republican representation in the American House of Representatives, is dealing with Biden's people on the final drafting of the bill. Legislation is required. And today's Tuesday, They'll be voting on this on Wednesday. Now, normally there is no drama about this. It allows the government to keep borrowing money, which I'm not in favour of, and remain solvent. The American Treasury said it would run out of money on June 5. Should the world's biggest economy default for the first time in history, and it won't, but this would trigger stock market panic, job losses and a recession. However, it's not over yet. McCarthy says there's still a lot of work to do, his words, and there are very significant and influential people in the Republican Party who rightly argue that the bill to raise the debt ceiling will fall short of their original attempt to force the Biden administration into huge spending cuts on social programs as a condition for allowing the debt ceiling to be raised. Now, make no mistake, we are talking about big money here. I mean, you can't get your head around it. The debt ceiling is a staggering $31.4 trillion. trillion. 46.8 trillion Australian. It's hard to get your head around it, but it is more than the entire value of the US economy. Over the past 100 years, and this is a problem with all democracies, and we've got it here with Daniel Andrews and Scott Morrison, captain of the debt teams, running up unconscionable levels of debt, which may never be paid off. But over the past 100 years in America, the federal debt has gone from 408 billion, 
1922 to 30.9 trillion in 2022, at a time when China was increasing its military budget this year by $230 billion. So the Democrats aren't happy about any spending cuts at all. The so-called deal will free up the debt ceiling for two years, meaning there will be no need for any negotiations in 2024 when a presidential election, of course, will take place. As I read it, there will be a budget freeze, and there should be, and tough rules on accessing unemployment benefits and other federal assistance. Initially, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned of a possible default around June 1, which is Thursday, if the debt ceiling wasn't raised. But then on Friday, she gave politicians some breathing room and the deadline is June 5. But the legislation will have to clear Congress much more quickly than the normal timetable because under House rules, politicians normally have to be given 72 hours, three days, before voting once a bill is presented. If it passes the House, it'll then have to go through the Senate where the Democrats hold the majority. But in the House, McCarthy's going to have to bring the majority of 222 Republicans with him, but there's about 35 of them who want sweeping spending cuts. So it does seem a large number of Democrats will have to be persuaded to vote with a reduced number of Republicans. Let's bring in the man who was a diplomat and a politician, but also an outstanding scholar, Dave Sharma. Dave, thank you for your time. Just before I get to that, uh, Biden didn't come to Australia for the Quad Summit, but this debt ceiling issue is dominating American politics. Just a word for our viewers on the significance of the Quad, this regional grouping of the United States, India, Japan and Australia. How significant is this? It's hugely significant, Alan, and it was um, elevated to a leaders level summit, I think, in 2021 during Scott Morrison's term as Prime Minister. But what it brings together is four nations, Japan, the United States, India and Australia, with uh, shared democratic systems and values, but most importantly, a shared commitment to keep the region, uh, the Indo-Pacific region, open and free of um, China's overwhelming influence and China's desire to restructure the region to make it a subordinate unit, uh, you know, underneath the People's Republic of China. So, I think that's important. So does it's, the it's Quad... A, it's a coalition effectively to balance China. Right. So there would the Quad, therefore, be seen as a provocative move in seeking to deter China in the region? Does China see this as some sort of provocation? Look, China sees it as a containment strategy, a vehicle for the containment of their own power and influence. Uh, we don't see it like that. We see this as about preserving what we've got in the region. We're not seeking to rewrite the rules or uh, change the power order of uh, the region or mess around with trade patterns or, or bring countries to heal. We just want to preserve the region that we've got because, in our view, uh, the open, trade-oriented, uh, liberal, in a small L, classical liberal sense, uh, uh, rules-based order has done a huge amount to not only preserve peace, but to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in the region. And China has been a huge beneficiary of that. I mean, China has seen the most rapid growth of any uh, developing country in a shorter space of time in the annals of history. Mm. In your judgment, therefore, where does the balance of power stand today in the Indo-Pacific? Well, it's a, it's a contest. Uh, China has made clear that under, under Xi Jinping's leadership, they want to rewrite the rules in the region. Now, whether that's um, exercising influence over countries on their borders, whether it's dictating trading patterns, whether it's forcefully reunifying with Taiwan, whether it's militarising the South China Sea and uh, declaring the South China Sea effectively a Chinese lake, China wants to change that system. And I think uh, the Quad is all about preserving that system and pushing back in order to allow nations to thrive and prosper under their own terms and with their own political system. So that being the case, was the postponement of the Quad uh, because of Biden any threat to its significance? I don't think so. It's it's unfortunate, but nothing more than that. I mean, the Quad meeting still went ahead, of course, in Hiroshima and in Japan. Quad leaders will meet again. Uh, it's it's going to continue, but this debt ceiling uh, or the potential for a United States default, that's of much more significance, not only to the US political system and to the US president, but to all of those who support 
US global leadership around the world, and I count myself uh, yes. amongst those in Australia. I, I, I must well, say, I, 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 I was delighted to note that you said that the prospect of America undergoing a sovereign default should focus the minds of Australians. Just amplify, Dave Sharma, why this is important in Australia's national interest for America not to default. Now, they won't default, but just why is it important that they don't? Well, look, for a number of reasons. Firstly, the United States is uh, still about a quarter of the world's economy, so it's, it's the largest economy if you measure it in in, um, in in real currency terms rather than purchasing power parity. It also provides the reserve currency, the US dollar, which most trade is still settled in, and that's underpinned by US treasuries, which is the what would be the subject of a default. But more importantly, the damage it would do to the credibility, if you like, of the US political model would play entirely into propaganda that comes out of the People's Republic of China, that the US is a broken political system, unfit for global leadership, unable to get its own house in order, never mind look after the rest of the world. And we support in Australia a US-led global order. So anything that damages the US leadership credentials, which a default certainly would, uh, by definition will undermine the strength of that order. And that's what's so important. All right, that's well, what's now, let's bring it home a bit and come to the conflict, therefore, right now in these next 24 hours. It's on right now between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Republicans, or there's a significant section of the Republicans, urging real spending cuts. When do we reach the point in Australia where someone will talk about debt and balancing the books? I mean, Australians forget, don't they, Dave Sharma, there was no debt ceiling when Costello was treasurer. There was no debt ceiling. There was no debt. This was introduced by Rudd and Swan in 2007, 75 billion. And they said, hang on, just give us the 75. We won't spend it all. Well, the coalition supported the legislation. Rudd spent the 75 billion. So in 2009, Labor increased the debt ceiling to 200 billion to borrow enough money to cover ridiculous spending proposals, and they spent it. And in 2011, they raised the debt limit to 250 billion. In 2012, Labor raised it to 300 billion. And in 2013, when a Liberal government came in, having inherited a stack of spending that they can't get rid of, Bowen. The architect of the mess, the same bloke now piling an energy catastrophe onto us, said, oh, 400 billion. Joe Hockey wanted 500 billion. The Greens said, forget it, no limit. So, Dave Sharma, a debt ceiling is meant to remind politicians of the consequences of borrowing and spending. But does anyone care? Well, they should care in Australia because we're in a different position to the United States. I mean, I think the the US level of indebtedness is of a concern, but the truth is that there will always be buyers of US Treasury bonds. Uh, they can quite easily finance their debt. A country like Australia, uh, if our debt levels reach too high, not only do our debt servicing costs go up and consume a growing amount of our tax revenue, taking money away from other potential spending uh, avenues, but it may become harder to borrow on international capital markets. Yes. And Australia has always, throughout our history, relied upon foreign capital to develop, to build infrastructure, yes. to finance, uh, to farm. And so our access to foreign capital is incredibly important. And, you know, I mean, when we went through the, you know, so-called banana republic crisis, when Paul Keating was treasurer in 1985, 1986, he was warning about the unsustainable levels of our current account deficit and hence the growth in our foreign debt, uh, posing a risk to Australia's freedom and sovereignty. Um, and if we don't get control of our own debt here, we will face the same potential challenges Absolutely. that Keith reminded yeah. and, and highlighted uh, mm. almost three decades ago. Yeah, well, the point is, of course, this bloke who could contribute, the electorate then says, oh, we want someone else. It's just unbelievable. I, we, we've got ourselves to blame for this. See, Dave Sharma, the equation's simple, isn't it? If you limit the borrowing, you have to limit the spending, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, look, the, the, the only way you square it away is either you limit the spending or you raise the taxation. Yes. You know, that's... The, Two ways you get the budget debt back into balance. I mean, this government, uh, the Labor government, has not honoured the uh, the ceiling we put on revenue collection, or you know, revenue as a percentage of GDP. Uh, they've overridden that. But ultimately, you know, something will have to give here. Either debt will increase, taxes will have to go up, or spending will cut. There's no way out of this trial. Absolutely, one of those things. Just back to America, a quick one on America again. Uh, this was about the debt ceiling because of the Quad. I think also because of the incompetence and incoherence of Biden. This has become a world story now. Has damage been done to the credibility of America and to whatever credibility Biden has left? I mean, 
Is America being damaged? Does the debate play into this global narrative? As you made this point, promoted by China, hang on, America has a dysfunctional and broken political system and can no longer be entrusted with the privilege of global leadership. Um, is that a consequence of this international attention on the debt ceiling? It is. Uh, I think it does. It is damaging. It uh, does illustrate the polarisation of the US political system. It takes up a huge amount of attention and bandwidth. I mean, not only did Biden have to cancel the quad, but it's all, all the White House and, and the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives has been focused on the last few weeks. And of course, provided a deal has been reached and gets through the Congress, it buys us two years when we'll have to go through this whole theatrical production yet again. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it is um, damaging. I'd like to see a long-term resolution reached. That might be a heroic hope uh, where you know, the US has put on a long-term path towards budget sustainability uh, without having to raise the debt ceiling every two years, but yes. whilst making sure that is found a, there's a way found for spending. Oh, yes. To there has to be. There has to be a way found. You made a very valid point about Australia. You said, and I saw that piece you wrote, quote, rather than bellyaching about Biden's cancelled trip, which reflects a parochial mindset not befitting a confident nation, we should be figuring out what we can do to help. What can we do? Well, I think the most important thing we can do is, is stress to congressional representatives, Republicans and, and um, Democrats, that is, that um, no matter what the intricacies and, and the merits of their arguments about where the debt ceiling should be, whether it should be raised, what areas of spending should be cut, this is doing damage to US credibility and standing abroad. It's playing into uh, China's hands, it's playing into Russia's hands, it's weakening the US claims to global leadership. And they always need to keep that in mind when they're conducting these discussions. Now, They've got their own domestic political imperatives, and of course, we all understand that. They're democratically elected representatives. They've got their own constituents to answer to, but they should never take US leadership for granted, would be the point I would make. They can't just assume that they can um, do any amount of self-harm or engage in any sort of, you know, uh, theatrics or push the US towards a default and think that it will not have consequences around the world in a way that I think would be damaging to them. Definitely. Just before you go, on the international stage, what do you make of this Wagner mercenary group aiding and abetting the Putin efforts in Ukraine? This mob have been leading the assault for the East Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, and the leader of this mercenary group, this Prigodzin, has admitted that 10,000 that he'd recruited had been killed, an additional 10,000 regular servicemen from his forces, these are Russians, had been perished, and he described the war in Ukraine as catastrophic, and he said that could set off a violent revolution in Russia. How do you see this? Well, he's an unusual character. I mean, the Wagner Group's been involved and is still involved in parts of Africa and uh, the developing world as well. But he has played a front and centre role in Russia's campaign to, to retake or to occupy Bakhmut. You're right. Um, he's done this. He's, he's largely gotten ex-convicts and criminals out yeah. of jail. They've had their jail sentence yes. reduced. They've been waved out of the jail cells and sent to the front lines of Ukraine. Um, and he's been, I think, pretty cavalier in how he's been prepared to spend that manpower because it's come to him cheaply. He doesn't really need to answer to anyone. But I think his level of disquiet over the war, I mean, he's careful that he tries to direct it towards Russia's military leadership and not lay it at the feet of Putin personally. But I think it does reflect that there is a lot of internal tension within Russia and disagreement within Russia about the wisdom of Russia's war in Ukraine, the conduct of it, whether they're fighting it properly or not, whether Putin is the right person to lead it. And I think that's something we need to try and find a way to exploit and lean into because ultimately, um, look, Russian wars tend to either end in victory abroad or revolution at home, mm. uh, one or the other. He, yeah. um, and we don't want to see them have a victory in no. Ukraine. We prefer to see them have a revolution at home. I well, think. well, that's exactly what he said. I'll just edit it because he made this point. He said everything might end as in 1917 with a revolution yes. when first the soldiers rise up and then their loved ones. And he criticised people like the Russian Defence Minister for protecting their relatives from serving in Ukraine. Interesting language. He said, the children of the elite smear themselves with creams and show off on the internet while ordinary people's children come home in coffins torn to pieces. Just one question then. From your understanding of this, and you've explained that very clearly and simply, how secure do you think the Putin leadership is? Well, I think it's much less secure than it was 
you know, 12 to 18 months ago. Um, he has, though, I mean, he reshuffles his military leadership constantly. He reshuffles his intelligence leadership constantly. He does what a lot of autocrats do, which is make sure that no rival centres of power can readily emerge or, or coalesce around them. So it's hard to, from what we know of the Russian political system from outside, hard to figure out who the candidate would be who would replace him, mm. and he does his best to destabilise mm. that opposition. Mm. But it's clear that his hold on the leadership is less secure than it has been, I think, you know, any time in the past decade. Yeah. Well, I thought that uh, just that Wagner group made this point, or the leader there said that the Kremlin goal of demilitarising Ukraine had failed, that the attack on Ukraine had really militarised Ukraine because they started with 500 tanks, now they've got 5,000. They started with 20,000 soldiers, now they've got 400,000. So one wonders where this is all going to end. Dave, it's good to talk to you. Thank you for your scholarship. Thank you for your interest. And we certainly wish you well and we'll talk again. Thanks so much for your time, Alan. Not at all. That's Dave Sharma, the former Liberal member of the Federal Parliament of the seat of Wentworth. Politics in this country can't afford to have people like this bloke outside the Parliament. Well, before we go, tensions are mounting in the world-class agricultural regions of Western Victoria. Locals tell me they've had enough. Actually, not just Western Victoria. Remember amongst the idiocy of this dangerous Chris Bowen, to meet the emissions target reduction of 43% by 2030, Bowen admits that they'll have to be constructed 10,000 kilometres of additional transmission lines. Well, it'll be more than that. As I said to Peter Dutton, I regard Bowen as the most dangerous political figure in this country since World War II. Where will these transmission lines go? Bowen's hell-bent on erecting them through the rich farms, paddocks and properties of farmers. So that Bowen and his green sycophants can reach their net zero ambition. Farmers in Western Victoria have had a gutful. Now, if you don't believe me, drive through St Arnaud, a small farming town an hour or so west of Bendigo. Alongside the highway, there are countless signs reading no to the AEMO. Now, the AEMO is the Australian Energy Market Operator, the government agency that's responsible for managing the electricity grid. You see, even if we could produce renewable energy from wind and solar, how do you get the power to the grid? build transmission lines through prime agricultural land. The situation is now dire for farmers. I've been told that along the side of planned transmission lines, there will be 35 to 50 metre, got this, 35, there's the line, 35 to 50 metre exclusion zones, either side, easements, the bureaucrats call them. So that means farmers will be unable to farm, spray, or even kill weeds across a substantial portion of their properties, a disaster for their bottom line, of course, and the health of their crops. But the bushfire risk is another concern, as is the decrease in the value of their land. But no, none of this matters to the Albanese government and Bowen. Whether the farmers like it or not, their land is in the way of the green agenda. Farmers, Australia-wide, look out. I can tell you the farmers of Western Victoria are by no means the only ones who will be impacted. The latest figures from the government suggest that Australia will need to build 28,000 kilometres of transmission lines to connect to the grid. All the wind and solar projects needed to get to net zero. Hey, 28,000 kilometres. Do you know how far that is? 28,000 kilometres, we could connect the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, the coal plants, to Chicago and back. How on earth is this renewable? Under Bowen's net, I told you this bloke is arrogant and dangerous. And he won't come on this program, I'll tell him to his face. Under Bowen's net zero agenda, vast swathes of Australia's most productive land will be scarred by transmission lines. Also, we can connect wind and solar projects that only produce power when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining. Meanwhile, power prices are through the roof. I've got the latest figures. In New South Wales, wholesale power prices are up a whopping 133%, sorry, 130% on an annualised basis. Similar figures apply for the rest of Australia. All I can say is, get used to it, Australia. Bowen and Albanese have gone all in on their renewable agenda. They won't be letting farmers get in their way. They won't be letting skyrocketing power prices get in their way. They will do whatever it takes to go to net zero. Ideology will triumph over reality until the energy crisis is upon us. I'm sorry, only when the lights go out 
industry shuts down and you lose your job. Well, we then wake up. I make no apologies for continuing to warn, as I have for years, of the economic suicide note. Bowen and Albanese are writing it, and unfortunately, it's being co-signed by politicians all over the country. Only you, the public, can change all this net zero nonsense, but it better be sooner rather than later. Well, that's it from me tonight. Don't forget you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow morning. Just search Alan Jones. Tonight's program and all past programs are on the app and the website adh.tv. You're watching ADH. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don't forget if you want to join Campo and me to the Rugby World Cup this year, October 19 to 29, there's some suites still available, 10 days, French River Cruise, tickets to the semi-finals, the bronze final and the final. Campo and I to entertain you talking rubbish about rugby, just go to the website zt.com.au, zt.com.au, or you can ring, write this down, 1300 786 1300 786 and inquire about a suite. I'll see you tomorrow night. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.